Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open up with me to John chapter 17. <coughs> I have a little bit of a cold today, so excuse that, please. We'll be in verses 20 to 23. And uh, we've been looking at this prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples at his last supper. And here at the end of the prayer, Jesus spends a lot of time praying for the unity of his followers. <clears throat> we know that when a person trusts in Jesus for eternal life, Jesus unites that person to himself spiritually. And at the same time, he unites that person spiritually to other Christians. And Jesus says that, uh, he is the vine and that we are the branches and that the same life and love and power that flows in him and through him flows in us and through us as believers as well. And so when Jesus prays that his disciples would be one, he's praying that his disciples would also be united on earth just like they are united spiritually in heaven. And we've defined this unity among Christians on earth as the diverse members of Jesus' body working together in harmony with one heart and one purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the diverse members of Jesus' body working together in harmony with one heart and one purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to finish this study on Christian unity <clears throat> by getting really practical and asking, how can I do my part to pursue Christian unity here at Cedar Home? Ephesians 4.3 urges us, if we're Christians, to be eager <coughs> to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I found out this week that that word maintain also means to guard or to protect. And so God's telling us to be eager to guard, to protect the unity he has given to us in Jesus Christ. And so what can we do as individuals and as a church family to protect the unity of Cedar Home Baptist Church? And we'll, we'll read John 17 in a second. Before that, let's ask the Lord to help us. Dear Jesus, we, we need your help right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that... Uh, you would give us minds that understand what you want from us. Please give us hearts that want what you want for us. We need you to give us supernatural wisdom so that we can seek to guard the unity of the body and to do that with your love and with your truth. We ask that you would humble us, Lord. Teach us what it means to truly consider others needs more significant than our own and to believe that. We ask, Lord, that you keep your hand on our church family. Help us to stay united uh, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our own sanctification, and uh, for the sake of our witness to the watching world. We humbly ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> So John 17, 20 to 23. Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may 
all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's the word of the Lord. And uh, Jesus prayed this prayer for unity right before a major transition was going to happen, obviously. Uh, Things were going to change big time for his followers, his disciples. They'd no longer have Jesus with them in the flesh who they'd relied on the past three years for everything. And now they had the added responsibility of, of fulfilling the great commission of making disciples of all nations, which meant that they would be moving. They would be going into hostile areas, demonically uh, oppressed areas where the gospel had never been. And as people heard the good news that they preached and as they trusted in Jesus, the face of God's people changed quickly and drastically. Uh, Jews and Samaritans, Gentiles, pagans, all these people groups who had long been enemies, uh, they would now come together to form a new people in Jesus called the church. And the early church grew quickly. It was a fluid organism. It was ripe for all sorts of conflicts, for interpersonal conflicts, for spiritual attacks from Satan and his demons, for persecution from the non-believing world. Well, just as the Lord strengthened the early church and guided it through new growth and changes, uh, so also the Lord has strengthened our church family here at Cedar Home. And it's guided us through a season of growth and changes in recent years, and we praise God that even though our church family is old by West Coast standards, uh, God is still working here, and he's doing that in new and powerful ways. Praise God for that. We have so many new people coming, which is exciting. It's hard for me personally. I can no longer, it's just hard for me to identify everybody in this room and contact everybody who visits here on Sunday. So if you have a heart for Welcoming people and hospitality, let me know, and I would love to have you help me with that. Um, We've added new staff positions this year, which has been a major blessing to our church to oversee children's ministry and worship ministry. I'm so thankful I get to work with the the people that I do. Another transition our church has had is, is just moving into this building, which has been a huge process. It's been years in the making. It's come as the result of many sacrifices on behalf of many of us. And uh, having a big building like this and just having more, um, being stewards of more uh, things, it forces us to be more organized and to do things like now pay for janitorial services and write building use policies and all these things are good, but again, it, it is a change for our church. And in uh, a combination of the new building and new people and new leaders means that we have great potential for new ministry opportunities in our church and in our community. And as more of you are getting involved, and I hope you do, I want this to be a place of many, <laughs> many servants, many teams, where we're all being trained and equipped and unleashed for the gospel. Um, where we're not just sitting and watching, but using the gifts and passions God has given us for his glory. And, uh, and as we do that, it requires, though, more volunteer training 
and job descriptions and communication. And, and so with all this good stuff happening, these are good problems. It doesn't take a, a genius, though, to figure out the interpersonal conflicts are likely to happen just as they did in the early church. Uh, Satan is going to attack us just like he always has. And, and at the same time, God is using his gospel through the Holy Spirit to work among us and to form the church family that he wants for this season here at Cedar Home. And since Jesus wants us to be a united church right here, right now, then the question each of us, each of you, if you're a Christian, if you consider this your church home, we must ask is, how can I do my part to protect the unity of Cedar Home Baptist Church? Because Jesus is passionate about that. And scripture has much to say about this. And this morning we're going to identify six ways that you can help maintain our church's unity. First, the first way to protect our unity is to do what Jesus does in this passage. To pray for our unity. Okay, When we pray for our unity, what we're doing is we're humbling ourselves before God and we are admitting to him that we cannot be a united church without him. Okay. So we ask God to work in us so that his will can be done here at Cedar Home. As, as teenagers and as adults and as families and as community groups and ministry teams and as an entire church, we need to join Jesus in praying for the unity of his church. And we need to pray that God would keep us from evil, that God would protect us from being Satan's pawns against one another. We need to pray that God would help us when difficult situations arrive in our lives. And we need his help to do what is right, and we need his help to do what is often not easy, but it's right. And we pray for all the different ministry leaders at Cedar Home, the leaders, because when stuff hits the fan, more often than not, they're the ones who have to deal with it. Right? That's just part of being a leader. And so our leaders are people just like everybody else. They need divine help and wisdom and support, and so we need to pray for them. I appreciate your prayers for the annual meeting in a few weeks. Pray that the Lord would prepare the way for us for this new year, that those who attend the meeting would speak and act in a way that honors the Lord and his gospel. Pray that we would come out of our meetings stronger and excited about what God is doing here. So let's not forget to join Jesus in praying for the unity of his church. If he prayed for unity, then certainly we should too. The second thing you can do to maintain unity here is to seek to serve others rather than to be served by others. Remember, just a few chapters earlier here in John 13, Jesus knelt down as a servant, and he washed the feet of all of his disciples, including Judas, who was about to betray him. And Jesus said in verses 14 to 17, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So whenever we are with other Christians, we should be asking, how can I serve the other people in my midst? How can I treat other people the way that I would want to be treated? And that should be on your mind when you're at your community group, 
when you show up to worship services on Sunday morning? How can I encourage somebody else with my words today? Who's going through a hard time that I can pray with? How can I help the leader of this certain event? Are there dishes to be washed? Does the trash need to be taken out? Are there, do they need copies made? Are there new people that need to be greeted? Are there bathrooms that need to be cleaned? This is what it means to be a servant. Jesus says that if he is a servant and he is God, then what does that make you and me? <laughs> at, at the minimum, it makes us under servants. And that means that to the best of our ability, we need to learn to be others-oriented people. Others-oriented people. The opposite of being an others-oriented person is to be a self-oriented person. And the impulses of our flesh want to be self-oriented, right? And, and we want to naturally be self-oriented people, concerned only about ourselves, doing what is necessary to get ourselves ahead, considering our needs more important than the needs of others. But Jesus acted exactly opposite. And he wants us to follow him in his footsteps, to be others-oriented, to believe in our hearts that we're not better than anybody else. We're not better than our neighbors. We're not, we're not better than anybody. And nobody really owes us anything except wrath. That's the truth because of our sin. I, d- I deserve God's wrath. And so it's a pleasure just to be in the presence of God's people. And even to be a servant of God's people, that's only possible because Jesus first served us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us so that we might trust in him and receive eternal life in him and have the pleasure of serving him. The church does not exist to serve you. You exist to serve the church. And so let's seek to serve others, not from a place of obligation, but from a place of gratitude to Jesus who saved sinners like you and like me. The third way to protect unity here is to major on the majors and minor on the minors, okay? Major on the majors and minor on the minors. And and what that means is spend your time and energy on what is most important to God, And avoid spending time and energy on what God says is not important. God tells us in his word what is most important to him. And he tells us what he doesn't want us to waste our time with. God says first that when you're doing life with other Christians, you want to major on the word of God, which includes the gospel, okay? You want to major on your shared faith in the one true God. You want that God to be your central focal point. When we come together, we want to major on the gospel of Jesus Christ that we together claim to believe and trust in. And according to Matthew 22, you want to major on loving God and loving one another. You want to major on your shared purpose to worship the Lord together and to uh, have fellowship together and to serve together and to make more followers of Jesus together. Because there are so many issues that can sidetrack us. But as Christians, we should have at the forefront of our minds the worship of our awesome God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we focus on God, and when we focus on loving God and loving others, it's much harder to be a self-oriented person and a self-seeking person. 
And, and just as we're intentionally trying to major on the majors, we must also work to minor on the minors. That means that we've got to be careful not to get wrapped up in and trapped by selfish agendas or by behaviors that God commands us to avoid or by attitudes and actions that hinder the mission of God. For example, in Titus 3.9, God commands us to avoid foolish controversies and dissensions and quarrels about things that do not matter. Paul says that quarreling in the church is unprofitable and worthless. Okay? Satan wants to get you worked up about things that don't really matter. He wants to get you to focus on everything wrong with our church rather than on everything right with our church. Satan wants to use you to discourage other Christians, to hinder other Christians from doing the work that God has called them to do. And so instead of complaining and quarreling about the church, Jesus tells us, serve the church. Okay? If you don't like the way that the bathrooms are being cleaned, then pick up a mop and a toilet brush and clean them yourself. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm dead serious. If you have a problem and you don't, go clean it. This isn't, you're not paying for a club membership here, okay? This is, we're a family. Go clean the bathroom. If you don't like the way that the children's ministry is being run, then sign up as a volunteer and ask him how you can help her. And if you don't want to help, then don't complain, okay? We love kids at Cedar Home, but you need to hear this clearly. This church is not obligated to watch your kids for you. This is not a, we're not a shop where you give us money and we give you goods. That's not how the church is. And I say that because sadly, that is how in America we often view the church. It's a place to consume stuff. It's all about me. What can you do, church, for me? Instead of what can I do for the church? And ultimately, if complaining about the church is a pattern in your life, then it would be really wise to step back and ask yourself, and analyze yourself. Why is it that 95% of the people around me are happy here, but I'm hardly ever happy to be here? Why is it that the leaders of the church never do things right, in my opinion? Why is it that I can't seem to find a church that meets my standards? There's just none that are good enough for me. Because if you honestly search your heart, and if you have the guts to ask some godly people in your life, what patterns they see in your life, be prepared because I think God will point out some wicked ways in you potentially if they're there. See, living in the Western world, we're really good at capitalism and consumerism and materialism and being wowed by the latest crazes. Some of those things aren't bad, but we need to remember that being a member of the church is not about being part of this beautiful production. It's about living together as broken people as we humbly repent from sin, as we forgive one another, as we pray for one another, as we turn to Jesus together, as we seek to bring him glory, as we seek to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what the church is, okay? So what are the molehills that you have maybe turned into mountains as a Christian and as part of this church? What are the things that you've majored on that Jesus wants you actually to minor on? There is no perfect church. 
okay? So let's ask God to help us confess our mistakes, to own our part, to care about what he cares about in the church body, right? Major on the majors, minor on the minors. The fourth way that you can help maintain the unity of our church family is to follow Jesus' instructions for resolving conflicts with people, okay? God gives us lots of instructions in the Bible about how to resolve conflicts with others. And if we obey his instructions, then our lives will go much better and we will protect the church from unnecessary pain. Uh, For instance, Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. So God tells us here, be slow to anger. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't fly off the handle. When something irritates you, ask God to help you stay calm. That is good sense. And then God says here that it is glorious to overlook an offense. And so um, it is a good thing to let many things roll off your back, right? There are many things that we need to look over, um, to to look over, right? And and, uh, to perhaps even chuckle at and move on instead of getting all worked up about. But at the same time, there are other things that don't just roll off our backs. And if a brother commits a hurtful and offensive sin against you, then it's, it's not best to bottle up your feelings. And at the same time, it's also not right to explode on your brother. Okay? In Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus teaches, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if your brother sins against you, first instruction is this, go to him and talk to him. Don't text him, don't email him, don't Facebook him, don't private message him, don't write him a letter. Go to him and talk to him, okay? It sounds simple enough, but why is this so rare to see this happen? And I'm not saying I've got this figured out. I'm saying why, though, is this so hard for us? I think it's because it's hard, it's humbling, it goes against our sin nature. I think it's hard for us because it's the right thing to do and it's difficult. It's way easier to write somebody an email or a text or a letter and send it to them like a bomb and then just let them deal with the aftermath, right? And people get hurt that way. But if we really wanna honor Christ, if we really wanna resolve conflict, then we learn to do things Jesus' way. And Jesus says that if the person does not listen to you after you go to them and expresses no remorse or sense of repentance for the wrong that they've done, then take one or two other Christians with you to that person again so that you have witnesses and so that those witnesses can join you in pleading to that person that they would repent from their sin. And if they still don't apologize or repent, then Jesus says that the third step is to bring it to the church. And the way that our church is governed, that would likely mean that these two to three people would bring it to the elders, who would then bring it to the whole body if necessary. 
And if the person still does not repent from their sin after talking with the elders, after being confronted by the church, then Jesus instructs the church to treat that person like a non-believer to remove them from membership of the body. And at that point, the prayer is that God would use the discipline of the church to cause that person to see the error of his way, to feel sorrowful about it, to apologize for it, to repent from it, and to eventually be brought back into the fold, okay? The point of church discipline is not to just say we're done with you, but to help people repent. I want you to notice this, that bringing an interpersonal conflict to the pastors and the elders in most cases should be one of the last steps. So, if you come to me or one of the elders and tell us something bad that somebody did to you, something offensive, we will likely ask, have you talked to the person yet? 90% of the time, people come up to me, they have not talked to the person yet. Did the person repent? I will ask you. If the person didn't repent, did you then take two or three people and talk to them? And if so, what happened? Okay, now we're starting to get, take steps toward, okay, this is now at the level of seriousness where it needs to be brought to the church. But the reality is, this is the truth. Most of us would rather have somebody else fix the problem than do it ourselves, right? Just go talk to the pastor, he'll do it. This is what he, we pay him to do, right? <laughs> That's not true. Jesus says this, blessed are the peacemakers, Blessed are those who make peace with others Jesus' way. He didn't say blessed are the elders because they're going to take care of everybody you're mad at for you so you don't have to. Peacekeeping in the church, unity guarding in the church is a task for every member of the church, not just for the elders. And that means that if a brother or sister in Christ is out of line or is divisive, then you can lovingly talk to that person as a brother or sister in Christ and call them out. And on, as your pastor, I would tell you this. One of the biggest ways you can help me is to be a shock absorber for me. Because it gets tiring dealing with conflict all the time. And so if you can help resolve conflicts and help other people resolve conflicts in their life, that would be a huge help to me because I'm just one guy. Okay. And let me give you advice, a little piece that I've learned because I've been, unfortunately, in too many difficult meetings and I've made my share of mistakes. When you meet with somebody face-to-face to talk about a disagreement or an offense, I'd encourage you to try to begin that meeting with the end in mind, okay? Before you enter that meeting, ask yourself, what do I want my relationship with this person to be like after this meeting? Do I want to be reconciled to this person? Do I want to be at peace with him or her? Would I like to be reunited to this person? Or do I mainly look forward to chewing them out and letting them know, proving that I'm right and they're wrong? Because if that's the case, you really probably shouldn't be meeting with the person. But if your goal is to express your feelings and take ownership of your part of the problem and to forgive and to be forgiven if, if that happens, uh, and to be reconciled with one another, if that happens, then that is going to shape the way that you go into the meeting, okay? Because if you love that person, then that will shape the way you talk to that person. That's going to shape the way that you speak with the volume of your voice and the tone of your voice 
in your body language. It's, if you want peace with a person, then work to express physically and with your words that you want peace, that you're not here to win an argument, but because you want to get right. I just encourage you, if, if you want to help maintain the unity of God's church, spend time and money learning how to resolve conflicts with people. Uh, there are several great books that summarize the Bible's approach to resolving conflict. One of the best short books I found is called Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy. It's like 100 pages. It's totally doable. Uh, and there's a copy of it out on the bookshelf in the lobby if you want to look at it. And this isn't just about conflicts in the church. It's about in life. And if you don't want to read it, then just <clears throat> go to YouTube and see what you can find by Ken Sandy. We could talk all day about this, but for now, I just encourage all of us to examine ourselves, to read from the Bible deeply on these things. Uh, the book of Proverbs is a great place to start if you want to grow in wisdom in the way that you interact with one another. If you're looking for a book to read right now, there's 31 Proverbs, okay? Just read one chapter a day and get through it. And there's so much wisdom in there. I encourage you to spend 10 bucks on a little book like Ken Sandy's because it's going to help you. And when you get healthy and you learn how to do this, what happens is it leaks into the church and it helps the church. And it helps other people in the church learn how to resolve their conflicts. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> now the fifth way you can help maintain unity at Cedar Home uh, pertains to you if you serve in a ministry of the church or if you're a leader of some sort in the church. Uh, so many results i found uh, so many uh, reasons for conflict in the church is, is simply a, a miscommunication. Uh, oftentimes, neither party means anything malicious, but a lack of communication happened or a miscommunication happened. People filled in the blanks with what they were thinking, and they blew this thing up into something that did not need to be. And as a church, the bigger and more active we are becoming, the more important it is to communicate well, to make efforts to do that. And so... As ministries, uh, we need to communicate with one another as often and as clearly as possible in the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that uh, the church is a body made of many different parts, but if those parts do not value one another, if they don't communicate with one another, then the whole body suffers. And we know this, communication is always at least a two-way street. It's not just one way, it's, it goes both ways. And so uh, let me just, I just want to get real practical, tell you about some of the steps we've been making this year to try to intentionally communicate better here at Cedar Home. We want to continue to do this. For a long time, Cedar Home was so small that there was no need for job descriptions for staff or deacons or ministry leaders. Uh, but as more hands are on deck, it's really important that everybody knows what their job is, what's expected of them, what other people's jobs are so that they don't try to go do their job for them. Right? And so we're creating job descriptions for the first time <laughs> for our staff and ministry leaders and volunteers who haven't had them before because we want people to know what's expected of them and how they can succeed, right? Uh, along with job descriptions, we want to train and equip volunteers. And so uh, we want them to have what they need to do to succeed, to succeed in what they've been asked to do. Right? So whether they're a children's ministry volunteer and they're getting trained over there for 10 minutes on Sunday mornings, which Kim does, or whether you were in part of this group with the grieving team a few uh, weeks ago who is in that 
training and discussion meeting, all of these things work together uh, to increase communication and to get the things that we need to do, uh, the, get the things that we need to do the job we've been asked to do, okay? Um, we're increasing communication efforts among the leadership by meeting monthly as staff and elders and deacons. For a long time, the staff did their thing, elders did their thing, deacons did their thing, and, and now we're meeting together once a month, which I love. And it's crucial that all the key leaders work uh, on the same page and, key, and make decisions together when necessary. These are the people that you, as the church, elect as ministry leaders and elders and deacons. Uh, we're working to increase communication with the church family by streamlining uh, our communication through email and Facebook and the bulletin and uh, during announcements by providing the information center in the lobby. If you're new here and you haven't been there yet, uh, the information center in the lobby is now staffed by somebody before and after the services to welcome new people and to answer questions about the church and and to point you to who you can talk to. We have a printout of all the pictures of the leaders in the church so you can know who's in charge of what. Um, and these are just some of the things we're working on, and it takes time. It takes time to do these things right. And again, uh, I'll remind you that communication is always a two-way street. So the staff and leadership can work hard to communicate with the church, but it's also each one of your responsibility to read the bulletins, to read emails if you've got them, to ask questions if you want more information, right? Okay, and the sixth way that you can help maintain the unity of the church is to show people lots of grace just as God has shown you a lot of grace. Work hard at thinking about what you say before you say it. Uh, intentionally think about what you do before you do it. Ask yourself, uh, would this word or action be an encouragement or a discouragement to my brother or sister in Christ. And again, it's about trying to have the heart of a servant and asking, how can I serve others today by showing them grace? Are you loving toward quirky people in the church? And do you realize that you are one of those quirky people? And so am I. I can deal with quirky people all day. I have a harder time dealing with malicious people but I can deal with quirky people all day because I'm one of them. Do you believe and live out the fact that in the church there aren't cool people and uncool people, there aren't rich people and poor people, there aren't city people and rural people? Do you believe Paul when he says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Are you learning to show grace learning to show grace to people who are different than you are. And can you do that without arrogance because you truly believe that you're not more important than they are? And if you're a person also, perhaps, who is prone to self-pity, can you show grace to other people and understand that just because they can't give you attention all the time doesn't necessarily mean they don't like you. They're just dealing with their own issues too. Are you able to show grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ by staying flexible? Can you go with the flow? Or does everything have to happen the way you want it, when you want it, and if it doesn't, you throw a fit? 
life and ministry and church very, very rarely happens according to our plans. And so you have to expect the unexpected. You have to remember the church is not about performing well for other people. You have to show grace to yourself and to others. This was one of the best lessons I learned as a youth pastor. Work hard. I, I work hard to prepare to do things with excellence. And at the same time, expect the unexpected and learn to go with the flow. Uh, you know, you think you're taking a van of teenagers to a retreat, but then the tire of the van blows out and you're stuck on the side of the freeway on a Friday night, okay? And yeah, it's a headache. And yeah, it's gonna cost some money, but you gotta go with the flow and just be thankful everybody's okay. And you know what? Those teenagers are not gonna remember every message you gave, but they are gonna remember getting stuck on the side of the road with you. That's a reality. If you use technology in any form in your ministry, check it out ahead of time. Make sure everything works right, sounds right, looks right. And then when it's time to use the technology, don't expect it to work. Okay? Be prepared with a plan B and go with the flow. It's just like clockwork. It's, it just doesn't work when you need it to work, almost always. Uh, we, need, we need to get out of our minds the idea that the people of God, the church, is a performance and that we need to try to look good in front of other people. If you're not having a good day today, you don't have to smile and pretend you're having a good day today. You could talk to somebody and cry with them and pray with them. The worship music's not a performance. It's a tool to help you worship the Lord. My job as a preacher is not to entertain you my job is to point you to God through his word so that you might obey and adore God more. And I need you to show me grace because I'm well aware of my many sins and mistakes and I fumble up my words sometimes and, and I'm a sinner like you in need of much mercy and grace. And so may our church at Cedar Home be a place where we work hard, where we pursue excellence for the glory of the Lord and at the same time may this be a place where we give much grace the exact same way that Jesus gives it to us. <clears throat> How can you do your part to maintain and protect the unity of the church? By praying for unity, by seeking to serve others rather than to be served by others, by majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors, by following Jesus' instructions for resolving conflicts with people, by seeking to communicate with one another as ministries, and by showing one another lots of grace, just as God has shown you lots of grace. And as you think about that list, it's critical to realize that you have not done those things well, and neither have I. And I will not do those things as well as I should in this life, and neither will you. But the message of the gospel of Jesus is not that if you do all these things well, then God will love you. The message of the gospel is that during his life on earth, Jesus did all of these things perfectly on your behalf. Jesus prayed perfectly for unity, even though you and I haven't. Jesus served others perfectly, even though you and I haven't. Jesus majored on the majors. He resolved conflicts perfectly. He showed people lots of grace, even though we haven't. And when Jesus went to the cross, he suffered for all the ways that we haven't done these things right. And God forgave us. 
And on the cross, God transferred everything Jesus did right to my spiritual account, to your spiritual account if you trust in Jesus, so that you get credit for fulfilling the righteousness of God. This is yours through faith in Jesus alone. And because Jesus is such an awesome savior, it's now my desire to pursue the unity of the church, not because my salvation depends on it, but because he's changed my heart. And now I wanna love what Jesus loves. I wanna hate what Jesus hates. And since Jesus loves the unity of his church, which I'm part of, then I wanna love the unity of the church like Jesus does. And I wanna do my part to protect its unity until he comes again, and I hope you do too. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you for your word and for this time we have to get together today and we just confess to you, God, that we are sinful and far from perfect and we thank you, God, um, for saving many of us and for working on transforming our hearts and minds and lives for your glory and I just pray that you would work in our hearts, work in our spirits, God. Give us real transformation that really considers others more significant than ourselves so that it's more than just outward action that we do to serve others, but it's actually a disposition of our heart. Um, We need you, Lord, to help us. We thank you for saving us and just pray that you continue to keep your hand on Cedar Home and continue to guide this church to to stay faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to your word, to love one another well. And please help us and this group of people that you brought at this time and place to use our passions and our gifts to serve the body here and to shine your light in this community, to serve this community, to reach the lost. Uh, We're not here for ourselves. We want to be others-oriented people. And... uh, We just ask for your help in all these things. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.